Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Sometimes we give them bowling balls, actually. They push really? them because they play with the bowling balls. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good bowling, pigs and bowling. It's a pretty great combination. And that's the sound you want to hear. It's the sound of knife against bone. It's a great sound in the morning. It reminds me of victory. Welcome to From Scratch. My name's Michael Ruhlman, and I've spent the last 20 years in professional kitchens writing about and with the world's best chefs. From Scratch is a podcast about cooking. In each episode, we'll talk with one chef and one non-chef about the same theme. The great thing about the cooking life is that you never stop learning. In this show, I want to go to the edges of what I know and then go beyond, together with you, with all chefs, home cooks, and everyone who cares about food and cooking. Today's theme is bacon, which comes, of course, from the pig and not the turkey, as some people may be led to believe. We visit a forward-thinking farm that raises all kinds of animals, not least of which is the pig. And I speak with and cook with my dear friend, co-author, and general mischief maker in the kitchen, Chef Brian Polson, who will tell you how to cure your own bacon, that most magical of ingredients. It's a good-looking pig. Brian has been owning and running restaurants in Detroit for decades. He's a great chef and cook, but he's also an extraordinary teacher. One of the best teaching chefs I've ever met, in fact. Brian not only teaches charcuterie at Schoolcraft College in Livonia, Michigan, he also teaches hog butchery classes throughout the country, and I often join him, as I did for the class at Fossil Farms in Boonton, 
New Jersey. You have to bleed the pig within 30 seconds to a minute after it's stunned. The reason for that is the heart's still pumping, so the heart will facilitate getting all the blood out. Why is the age of the animal important? Age of the older the pig, the more exercise. More, ex more exercise, more connective tissue. More connective tissue, more collagen, more collagen, more flavor. Locomotion is critical to muscle development, so they have to move around. Okay, shoulder blade. This also tells me a little story too. Age of the animal, bone, 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 cartilage. So an older animal wouldn't have hardly any cartilage. Like 12, 14, 15, 18 month old, cartilage is gone. While he often gets his information wrong, he's always funny. And once he's got you smiling, you're his. I was kidding about that, getting his info wrong, by the way. <laughs> I, had, I had a woman one time. <laughs> she goes, where's this chicken from? I said, Fenton, Michigan. And I said, what brand, what is it, Bard Rock? She goes, what did you do to make it taste so good? I said, I seasoned it with salt and pepper. She goes, how did you cook it? I said, I roasted it. It was so beautiful, I didn't need anything else. And she just wanted a story, so I told her it was left-handed. <laughs> and she goes, I knew there was something. <laughs> All right, enough of that. All right, now, Brian, uh, you teach hog butchery courses across the country. Uh, I would say, I, I'm with you on the chefs or craftsmen, but there is, a, there is extraordinary artistry in theater to how you break down a whole hog. Even though you are, you've done a thousand pigs, even though you've done that, do you still keep learning when you break yes, down that pig? I do. And um, every pig tells a story to me. And, and there's a hundred different ways to cut a pig. The only wrong way to cut a pig is if you're going to waste it. So you can cut it for barbecue, you can cut it for charcuterie, you can cut it for salami, you can cut it for cooking, you can cut it for utilization, cut it for retail, cut it for wholesale. You can cut it all sorts of different ways. And there's always a little nuance. There's always something. So it, it drives me. It's like, it's like I'll look at and I'll, I'll cut uh, one cut and I'll, I'll say, oh, this pig looked like it was stressed. So I'm not going to waste the meat. So if it was stressed meat... What are you going to see? The how, pain, how, well, like how underneath, you know? the, on top of the shoulder blade where the, the presa is, that small muscle, there may be some tissue there that's kind of uh, soft and wet looking. And that's a sign of stress. Now, does that mean that you can't eat that pig? Yes. I mean, it does not. I mean, you still use it, but I would not dry cure that because the pH is wrong. It certainly wouldn't be good for salami, but maybe whole muscle. I might take that and do a, a, a shoulder picnic ham, cure it and smoke it and use it for, um, you know, either even lunch meats it would be good mm -hmm. for, it, right? So I still learn a lot, and, and it's very exciting. And you said, well, when I, when I cut a pig, it's, you know, there is an entertainment value, I think. But I found that being a teacher for as long as I have been, you have to engage your audience. I, am, I don't care how smart I am or any teacher is. If the people who are listening to you are not getting the subject matter, you're not a good teacher. So if I've got to pepper it with humor, if I've got to make a joke about this or that, and it engages them, and they remember that, like, you know, why do we trust chickens, Michael? Because we don't trust lawyers. Very good. You learned that <laughs> one. <laughs> we started our discussion with Brian's favorite topic, one of my favorite topics, and an ingredient right. with near universal appeal. Bacon. Bacon. We can never stop talking about bacon. We I always love bacon. Conversations always come Wait, back. This reminds bacon. me of that NPR show where the two women are talking on, on Saturday Night Live. Oh, bacon. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I want to do is I want to encourage more people to do it at home. They mm. don't, you know, it's, it's easy. Couldn't agree with you more. I mean, in Charcuterie, our book, it's probably the second easiest thing behind corned beef to do. And you don't need a you know elaborate smokehouse, although it would make it better. But you can do it as simply as uh, on your barbecue or hibachi outside. Introducing, I wouldn't use charcoal briquettes to get the flavor. I would use hardwood, and you can make your own bacon. It's very easy. And if you don't smoke it, you can still roast it. Right. right. 
Yeah, which I which I have roasted I've often belly done. is a really good thing. And they make good lardons for yeah. our just salad. About anything. Yeah, yeah. I like to tell people, you know, I ask them, have they ever marinated a steak? I say, sure. You put a steak in a bag with some, you know, sounds salad like you're making bacon to me. <laughs> bacon is the same, same thing. Same thing. Well, yeah. curing is like that. There are principles to follow, right? You know, the amount of time on the salt, the ratio of salt to uh, the protein. You don't want your end result to be bad, but it, and you know, it should be a staple in your home kitchen if you're a even a not serious home cook, just an average home cook. Use bacon you make yourself as opposed to store bacon when you make a white bean stew or, or um, braised cabbage, you know, something, a winter dish like that. Bacon becomes a flavor enhancer. It doesn't have to be the main thing. It doesn't have to be, look at me, I'm on the plate. It's meant to be there. I am cool. Bacon is so cool, it doesn't need to have that center of plate attention. What is it about bacon that is so universal? Why do we all lo- love to... We just love the smell of it. We love the taste of it. Every Even vegetarians, I know, if they don't eat bacon, they long for bacon. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I should disclose this to the public, but I snuggle with slabs of bacon. <laughs> 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 you know? Uh, I, I actually believe that. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, it's, uh, you know, it's like one of those foods that are important, and it's nice to... Um, to recognize it. I mean, it's, it's so versatile. I mean, every, everything has a place in the kitchen. I mean, flour is important. Butter is important. Eggs are important. Um, salt is important. Pepper is important. Right? Acid is important. But bacon is just one of those universal things that it just does. It's perfect by itself, and it, and it does so much to other dishes. I mean, the pig is the most versatile animal out there. I mean, there's so many things in charcuterie and salumi that uh, you make from the pig that, again, are not meant to be center of the plate. It adds so much to everything it touches. That's mm-hmm. what's important about it. Bacon is one product that falls into an entire category of cooking. Charcuterie. All those things we made to preserve food before refrigeration and continue to make today because of their deliciousness. Um, tell us about charcuterie from your vantage point. What is it? First, what is it? What's charcuterie? Uh, well, it's the art of preserving food before the refrigerator. So everything before the refrigerator, I mean, if you think about how long, how long has the refrigerator been around, I mean, 150 years because of electricity, but food's been on the planet slightly longer than that. And uh, the craft of charcuterie, that's why we call our books the craft. I'm, I'm tired of people saying, chefs are artists. You know, it's really, it's not, it's a craft. It's something you learn, something you understand. And many things were not invented for the coolness they are today. Many things in charcuterie were invented out of necessity. It's like I've got this whole pig and it weighs 400 pounds and I've only got two children and a wife and there's four of us. There's no way we're going to eat 400 pounds of meat. But we need to stay alive through we the winter. We need to stay we alive through food. winter. So, I mean, the, you, you know, there's a lot of things that out of necessity. The byproduct of it is that it turns out it tastes pretty good, like prosciutto. I mean, prosciutto, of course... Luigi and Roberto weren't sitting on a hill a thousand years ago in Tuscany and say, what would you like to do today? Oh, let's invent prosciutto. That is not <laughs> what happened, okay? They said, man, let's put salt on that and let's hope it stays good. Yeah. And the byproduct is, oh my God, it's turned into a, a craft of, of exact science almost, what the pig eats, how much exercise it is, how long it hangs, what type of salt you use, the environment it hangs in, the region, the air that blows. That's why a San Daniela ham tastes different than a, than a uh, Parma ham that tastes different than a Bayonne ham that it does from uh, um, Pate Negro, uh, Sereno ham in Spain. They're all made the same way. So, mm-hmm. Are pâtés important to you and why? So important. Well, from my perspective, you know, being a restaurateur chef for a long, long time, um, I own my own businesses. And I don't know if anybody out there listening understands this, but profit is not a dirty word. 
Profit is a good thing when you own your own business. Not at the point of exploiting people for your own personal gain. It's about respecting our environment, respecting our ingredients, and respecting those animals that died a noble death for us. It's a privilege to be higher on the... Um, Food chain. Food chain, right. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking of this ladder, but yeah, higher on the food chain. Exactly. That's why we get along so well. You're reading my thoughts. And uh, so utilization is the key to profitability. I mean, I would buy a half a pig every three weeks at my restaurant. I'd butcher it up. I might make prosciutto. I might make roast. I might make a shink and speck. I might make lanza, lomo, sausage, salami, whatever. Every single scrap, everything was utilized. First, of course, out of respect for the animal and what I paid for it, but also out of profitability. I mean, it is magical. It's the most magical part of the kitchen to take underutilized cuts that most chefs might not know what to do with it. A shank, a shoulder, a neck muscle. Everybody knows what to do with the chops, the middle meats, the belly, the ham, uh, uh, the the head even. The head for a porchetta di testa or a or a brawn would be in Scottish cooking, or sopraceta di Toscano, which would be a head cheese in, in Tuscany. It is beautiful, beautiful food that lasts relatively long with or without refrigeration. It tastes great. It blows your mind, and it's highly profitable. I mean, it, it's my soul. You know, I'm a half-chef creative guy, but I'm half-businessman. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, for me, that's why, I mean, it's been part of my life since really, really early on. Like 1982, I think, was my first pate. God, are you that old? How old, I am are, that how old. old are you? Oh, you just had a big birthday. Yeah, 60, baby. <laughs> yeah, I love getting old, though. It's like, uh, I think my best years are in front of me, and uh, I've done a lot in the restaurant. I've contributed to a certain amount of American cuisine, not as much as other people, but in my own small way. And I see the future for me is, is continuing down that path, partially due to the fact that Something I've always said to you is that we practice charcuterie the way a lawyer practices law or a doctor practices medicine. When you practice something, you get better at it and you learn from it. And I know you feel the same way about this is that one of the things that I thrive, that makes me very excited about cooking is that no matter how much you know, there's almost as much as you know as what you still need to know. Mm-hmm. And you ask any great chef, they'll say the same thing. They want There's always something to learn. So here's an example. Go to a doctor and you've got pains in your chest and he goes, ah, there's nothing wrong with you. I know everything there is to know. Run as fast as you can from that doctor because <laughs> he doesn't have the mentality to be great. You know, Brian, I'm going to ask you a very hard question. What is your favorite part of the pig? Oh, man. Absolute favorite. That is uh, almost as tough as asking which one of my five children I love the most. I love them all equally, but for different things. But if you held a gun to my head... And you said, I, I guarantee you, either your brains will be on the paper, or your signature, if it was one of those situations, <laughs> I would have to say the, the copa muscle. Ah, uh, the neck yeah, muscle. the neck muscle that runs into the loin. Yeah, I use that, why? I use why. that muscle for, of course, dry curing is the easiest muscle to dry cure. It's and just delicious. A lot of intramuscular fat, a lot of flavor. But I also use it for a, a typical, rep, you know, I cook every night at, at home for my wife and I. And one of the things I do is a schnitzel. And I take that muscle and pound it out using a wooden mallet and I just flatten it and then egg wash or flour egg wash and panko crumbs mm-hmm. and pan fry. It. And then on some nights I, I'd put a fried egg on top. Mm. Oh my God, it's beautiful. Or another one I do, I just had um, on Thursday, my mother's 92. I cooked dinner every Monday and Thursday for her. I took that muscle, roasted it whole. Nice. Seared it in a pan, roasted very slowly and sliced it and we ate it with Heinz 57 sauce. <laughs> 
<laughs> Did you really? My mother like, listen, man, <laughs> you know, do you fight with a 92-year-old woman? Oh, no. No, you don't. I had mushrooms. I had all, you know, I had all the rapini on the side and, and all this, but she wanted Heinz 57. And I actually, I like Heinz 57 too for that. So yeah, <laughs> sliced, beautiful like that. Also, you know, the, the, there's a muscle attached to the copa called the pluma and it's a triangular shape. Uh, shape. I'll, I'll make a stuffing or um, some sort of, you know, pine nut spinach vegetable mixture. And I'll flap that meat over and tie it like a roast and I cook it in my wood burning oven at home nice and slow when I have guests over like a Sunday or something like that. Easy thing that you can pull out and slice and it's very dramatic. And people say, what? What cut of meat is that? I say it's pork, you know. I've never seen that. You know, it's got a lot of flavor because there's fat in it. Mm-hmm. Fat is flavor. Fat is our friend and we love fat. We do indeed. Uh, what is somebody going to the grocery store? How can, they, how can they get this magical copa muscle? Impossible. No, the only way to do it is get a full pork butt which is a USDA primal cut. Front top, shoulder. Top of the shoulder, Boston butt, or the top of the shoulder, mm-hmm. called the butt. If it's bone in, it's very easy to find because the, the bone in is the uh, shoulder blade and there's a flat side and a curved side. Run your knife along the flat side and that muscle that falls off is the copa. Mm-hmm. It's shorter, but it is the muscle. No, but I was trying to think, is there an American name for that muscle? Uh, well, in barbecue, they call it the money muscle. Hmm. So when they, when you watch a barbecue show, or you go to a barbecue competition, and they do a pork pole, that's the mu- they, those guys call it a money muscle huh. because that's where the money, that's the win. That. It's a winning muscle. Um, the only butchers that would know it is these crop of new generation butchers that are opening all over the country in small towns like Saucy Saw in Cleveland or like uh, Publican Quality Meats in Chicago or like. Uh, small butchers, when I do these classes, or we've done classes all over the country, we, we find these small butchers. It's amazing. And they'll, they'll, it's like the old school. Customers will walk in and say, I'm making fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. They don't say, I want a piece of shoulder. I want a chuck. They'll walk up to the butcher and say, I'm making a steak beef stew or, or a steak yeah. free. The butcher says, I have the perfect cut for you. Right. I'm going to cut the meat for you. Because ultimately, butchers are awesome cooks. They can look at a muscle, they can touch a muscle and know exactly how it should be cooked. And they'll look at it and say, this is a tough, semi-tough meat. It will do well with moist heat cooking, but not quite all the way a braise, but not a stew. Or this muscle is dry heat cooking, good for grill, good for roast, good for you know, pan searing, whatever. This is like a steak frite, for instance, would be that cut. Or like the neck muscle, that can be grilled, roasted, braised. It's fine, perfectly fine braised. Could be roasted with a stuffing, beautiful. And only a butcher would know that. Mm-hmm. And probably because, like me, being a butcher, I've eaten every single part of the pig. Mm-hmm. And I love it. I love it. Brian, what are you saying? You, you talked about small butcheries. I've noticed them mm-hmm. cropping up. You went to one in Cleveland, mm-hmm. my beloved hometown. Not just one, yeah, but all over the country. I, I run into people. What's doing, the, what's, why is this happening? What's going well, on? We were in St. Augustine doing a yeah. hard butchery thing. They did a great job. Very nice job. What's going on? Why is this well, happening? It's, it's like... Um, the phenomenon of great food in America is happening because the consumer is more educated and more interested in their food now than ever before. So, for instance, we wouldn't have Berkshire pork or Kobe beef on a regular basis, anything like that, unless the consumer wanted it. And if we don't provide the, the farmer to raise us wholesome animals and they make a living, then we'll never have good food. And so... The small butcher is looking at that and seeing that people want to know how to cook, but 
come on, man, nobody who's a stockbroker or doctor or lawyer, they cook for a hobby on the weekend. They don't want to go through the five-year apprenticeship I had to go through. They want to spend 80 hours a week in the kitchen grinding out to understand the principles. They want to kind of do surface-level cooking, and which is fine. Any cooking is good cooking. They, they want to say, hey, what kind of meat can I get for this? You can't go into a grocery store and get that, these large chains. When I was a kid... There was a butcher in every grocery store. Yeah, they get they get whole sides of beef. Yeah, they would they cut themselves. Break. I mean, they weren't the greatest of butchers. Kind of like you know, call him a diner cook instead of a white tablecloth cook. He could cut a steak off a strip loin, but you know, you ask him where you know I, I want the um, you know want the flat uh, iron skirt cut, steak. Yeah. I want the flat iron. Oh, forget the flat iron. <laughs> <laughs> That's in the shoulder. I mean, they didn't even hear of it back then. But uh, now you see this, and I, I I find it to be very important. So. The customers have to support those local butcher shops, just like everything else local, and we'll see a great change in food in America. And we're already seeing it. We're seeing it's very important. And it makes a difference. Um, I want to read you something that I just read. My friend Steve Sando sent me a copy of his new book, Pozzoli, about this stew native to the Americas made with hominy, dried prepared corn. Steve, besides having started a bean company, check links on my site, is also a fabulous writer and cook and thinker. He says, recently I made a French daub with meat from a gourmet butcher. I was using braising cuts and was shocked by the high price. Did you explain what daub is? Daub is like a, it's like a beef stew. It's, like it's a, in a daubier, like your Dutch oven. Yeah. It's a very like provincial dish, mm-hmm. everyday cooking. It's a, it's a beautiful dish done right. Yeah. And a, a daub should use uh, a muscle with a lot of connective tissue because the moist heat steam breaks it all down, gets the flavor into the sauce. Sorry, Perfect. No, no, thank you. Thank you. That's beautiful because we don't know what daub is here in uh, America. I was using braising cuts and was shocked by the high price. I smiled and made a mental note never to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> From one of these, you know, fancy, you know, small butchers. The daub was fabulous, so fabulous that I decided to make it a week later, this time getting the exact same cuts from the grocery store and following the same recipe. The entire family agreed, without prompting, that the version I'd made with sustainably raised grass-fed beef was dramatically superior. Uh, and there you go. That's, That's it, man. Yeah. Um, so we're getting... It's testament. Mm-hmm. It's like making prosciutto from a factory pig or from uh, a um, you know, heritage breed... A uh, well-raised animal. Right. It's like a soft-serve vanilla ice cream from Dairy Queen or Ben & Jerry's Tahitian vanilla ice cream. Right. There's no comparison. Right. What I'm most hopeful about is that young people are getting into this hard business, mm-hmm. that they want to open these. It's what it takes, man. Because, you know, like me, why, out, of, out of the restaurant business for 28 years and owning my own blah, 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 why am I out? Because it's, it's a young man's game. Like, I used to be Miguel Cabrera... You know, he's a very famous Detroit Tigers baseball guy. <laughs> Bats 360. I mean, I get to the plate, I hit a home run almost every time. I'm a badass. Now I get up to the plate, and I can't even see the ball come over. The, I can't even see 90 miles. I, what? Where did that ball come from? <laughs> so, I mean, there's an age factor. Yeah. And I've got wisdom. I've got to be in the office. I've got to be management now. I can't be the player. And it takes young people with the energy, the passion, and then the right guidance and the right knowledge to go down the right path to do the right thing for not only themselves, the animals, but American cooking and our food culture. When we come back, we're going to tour an experimental farm and speak with its director about how he's transformed his pig farming by getting the pigs off a grain diet.
Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. To learn a bit more about Bacon and the Pig, we visited with the team at the Stone Barns Center for Food and Agriculture, also home to the restaurant Blue Hill at Stone Barns. If you've seen the popular Netflix program, Chef's Table, on Chef Dan Barber, and I highly recommend it, season one, episode two, you'll see how agriculture and a high-end restaurant work hand in hand. It's amazing stuff. Stone Barns once raised their animals and grew their vegetables on fewer than 100 acres. They've since been bequeathed 400 acres of national parks surrounding Stone Barns in Picantico Hills, a 10-minute drive from Terrytown, New York, on the Hudson River. My name is Jack Algier, and I'm the farm director here at Stone Barns. Um, and I helped to found the farm and, and get it established here. We were a diversified farm, so we were raising sheep and cattle and goats and chickens. How, how, how big is it? How, what, what, what's the, what's the, give me an idea of the scope. Uh, how many animals? Well, we, this year we had about 112 head of cattle, um, so they kind of go in groups. <coughs> to get a sense of the place, we wandered the farm with Stone Barnes's Jessica Galen who walked us through their crunchy, nearly freezing fields on a beautiful November afternoon. So we are approaching the flurd, which is our name for our flock herd. So most of our sheep and cattle move around together uh, throughout the growing season. So we found that they do really well together. So that's 
nice. They have a different, each animal sort of contributes different things to uh, the pasture. So it's nice to have them sort of in a community where they have different taste preferences, their manures are contributing different things. They're obviously very different sizes. So the physical impact that they have on the land varies. We have uh, a Shropshire and a Katahdin flock, um, a total of about 90 bred ewes and all of their lambs. And that, that group is growing. We have a goat herd that you know, clears our trail systems. We have about 60 miles of carriage trails in the preserve here. The goats manage all of that. Uh, we raise hens, about 800 hens, so about 400 dozen eggs a week. So we're calling about 200 stew hens today. Uh, that whole flock has just come off the pastures and gone into the barns for the winter. Are those dogs to? Yeah, so those to... are some of our pups and they're being trained um, to do livestock guarding Shit. because our animals are out oh, all guarding. season long. Oh, so, wow. you know, for the, the hens certainly can use some. Yeah support from from hawks and uh then there are coyotes in the area as well so um like the sheep sure you know it's more that they would just if a coyote started approaching at night the dogs would would sense that and bark loud enough to to scare them off it's not that there would be you know a fight necessarily How do you explain this place to someone who's not familiar with it, who cares about food, restaurants, cooking? How do you give an overview? Uh, this is a food culture experiment, really. It's, it's a We are doing things together that I think what's really beautiful about this place is there's a lot of great things happening individually. You could go to any corner of this place and get involved in some really extraordinary cooking or fermentation or or agricultural practice, or husbandry practice, or something. Jack began raising animals here in 2003, including pigs. But their standard diet of grain was becoming a big problem. You know, great success with the animal, good quality, all that. We did it for years, and the more we did it, uh, the story kept growing. Our uh, ethic around it and, and the storytelling around it was always about how these animals are experiencing their wild nature, and they get to live in this way that is uh, very humane, um, and that they have this outdoor space. But the more we were doing it, the more we started to recognize the, the impact on the environment itself. Tell me um, about that. What I started to see was that we were not purely in this new regenerative model. We could sort of had our foot in two worlds. Uh, we were still attached to a grain-based feed system. The problem with that is that grain, especially organic grain, becomes very expensive. So it it becomes even more expensive than the labor of managing those animals. Hmm. And so the trend to want to keep meeting a margin and to pay for these pigs pushes the numbers of animals. So it was 200, 250, 300, 20 breeding sows, multiple boars. The system just kept spreading, and we had groups of animals everywhere. It was spreading our labor and really expensive for grain. He was noticing what any commercial pig farmer should notice. If you have a consistent monthly expense for an input like grain, the product, the pig, will be more profitable if you shorten its lifespan. 
it's simple math. But it didn't feel right for Jack. After years of doing that, I finally got to a place where I just said, you know, we, we have to stop. Like, we have to figure this out. And it's really, sometimes it's just impossible to do it while the train is running. The reality with all of the animals we have on the farm, a cow, a sheep, a chicken, pig, they all have to recognize their ecological purpose. So the rule that I really clearly set, not that I hadn't believed that in the past, but I, I had to really define that for myself and for this group, is that the ecological service has to be perfectly clear before we bring the species on the site. And then we can figure out how to design the enterprise, see if we can make it work from there. Because realistically, especially for us, we're trying to show, we're trying to, what Stone Barns again is, is this place of experimentation. So because we have this great community, we have not only the privilege of, but also the responsibility to take risks because we have the great support of the nonprofit, of the restaurant that's really interested in uh, these best, unique, and, and different kind of things to play with, and they can give really clear response. So I said, if we can't do this here, then we really, we really have some big problems, bigger problems in the food system than we thought even. We totally stopped the program. We sold off the Burks that we had. As soon as we did that, everybody was an uprise because it was like, you know, we really need to have bacon. We need, to, you know, the, not having pork products around after all that time got, get, you know, started to get people up in arms a little. When did this happen? When did you sell off the stock? Uh, 2015. At that point, I thought, you know, okay, let's, let's rebuild. Let's really think about the, the components. What do we need? What's this wheel look like? We need to have, we need to really recognize that the food source is a really big issue, that the actual ecology matters. I say that, do we have the land? Do we need this animal? You could ask, what does a pig even do? What's an undulate for? What is its best possible function in nature? And how do we kind of try to mimic that design in a way that actually is beneficial for us, the forest, the pigs, the consumer? Well, do, t- tell me, what do, what do they do? What do, what do they need? What, what is their best ecological environment? The thing about pigs is that they go in, we know, we know enough about them. They're, they're disruptors. <laughs> they go in, they hit it hard and fast, they turn it over, and then they're out. The land, you mean? Yeah, the actual they, earth. They, they hit they the land, they turn the land, they literally, you know, that nose-till thing. They just work it, they eat grubs, they break down logs, they make open space, and then they leave for a long period of time. The frequency of return is because they move far and wide. You huh. know, they, you know, a group of pigs in the wild is called a singular. Oh, really? Right, so this is an interesting a idea. A singular of pigs? A singular of boars, right? So uh-huh. I like that term because that's, that's the program. They, they work as a group. They're so intelligent. They're omnivores. They're, they're eating anything they could basically put in their mouths. And, and they are working in this way, you know, really impulsive, looking for food and moving to those spaces. But why is that good? Well, because... Intermittent disturbance is very valuable in the perennial nature. That opening up the ground stimulates all kinds of fertility release and new space for things to grow and change. And that disruption is actually really valuable for working in forestry. So that's the other thing. Forests don't need lots of fertility. So they actually, back to the wild animal, infrequent touch. So 
A fairly small amount of pigs can cover a large amount of ground and do good. Jack and his team experimented with groups of 40 pigs or so, containing them in forested paddocks surrounded by solar-powered electric fencing. This method proved perfect for improving the land and the life and health of the pigs. Okay. How old are they when you get them? Eight weeks. Sometimes ten, but usually eight. And then they hit the ground. The key here is that we're also looking at seasonality. I was going to ask you. Right? Because yeah. now we're also looking at the fact that the forest is doing different things at different times. Mm-hmm. So the spring is a really productive time to have larger animals in the woods because there's a lot of regrowth, there's a lot of invasive sprouting, things like that coming up. Um, they work really closely with the goats in the spring because mm-hmm. we'd be moving, you know, passes of right. uh, one animal and then another. It seems, you know, one is turning the ground, the other is eating, and then we're seeding over these animals while we're with them. They're seeding behind them. And then in the fall, we want them big again, late fall, for all the mast. I mean, we have oaks and hickories are our primary forest trees here, and there's a lot of mast on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and that both of those seasons actually provides a really different profile of an animal. So the quality of the animal at the end of the day, it's not only very unique in its own right because it's eating from these spaces, but it is also very different from the spring to the fall mm-hmm. in these different groups. So one group is maturing through spring into early summer. The other is maturing through fall to early winter. To say how we're moving them around the woods is really key. But here's how they freed themselves from the constant weekly expense of grain. They stopped buying it altogether and moved to a diet composed of whatever was already in the farm, waste from the kitchen, grubs in the soil, and from sources throughout their community. But I'll start by saying the whole, this whole thing hinges around having an entirely waste-fed diet. Yeah, talk about, talk about that's important. Tell yeah, me about I mean, that. this is the key Because you the talked about how thing. expensive grain was. We know we already have pre-consumer vegetables from the restaurant. We know we have scraps from our wash station and, and around the vegetable fields and greenhouses year-round. We have mm-hmm. product. Yeah. There's always enough green scraps that are coming off the fields or out of the restaurant. You know, bottoms of cabbage leaves and, you know, lettuce butts and uh-huh. things like that. Um, and they're fairly specific, so we, we also have to, you know, tell the team, you know, not put potato skins and not put onions in there and stuff. And Pigs don't like onions? They don't like bananas. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that pigs just don't like at all. Really? Yeah. Bananas? <laughs> they don't like onions? They, don't, they despise onions. Really? Yeah, so they, they, there's a lot of other things that they like. What do they like? <laughs> uh, well, they love the greens. They, huh. Any kind of green vegetable they love. They love squash. Uh, the funny thing about squash is you have to smash it up or else they just play with it. <laughs> so we grind a lot of that stuff. Any of the bigger things, you know, we got to grind it because then they just kick a squash around a field. You know, sometimes we give them bowling balls, actually. They push really? them because they play with the bowling balls. You know. Yeah, it's, it's a good bowling. Pigs and bowling is pretty great combination. Anyway, it's good because they can't break it and they can't really bite it because it's too big. Anyway... These guys, the way we set up the program, so we have all the vegetables, and then we have um, a great brewery in town, uh, Captain Lawrence. So we've done a lot of stuff together. We planted hops. I grow some grains and raspberries for him. And we were taking test batches of, of uh, totes of grain mash back and, uh, you know, trying to mix it into the feed and stuff. Mash as a, a thing. So a lot of times people will feed it as a, a supplement to cattle and stuff like that. But it's so fibrous 
that hmm. it goes right through an animal, like a pig especially, because pig is a short digestive tract. It's not like it's got a rumen that can right. manage the fiber. So it's not a great food source for pig. And just to the profile of something like mash is that because it's been fermented, it's lost all its sugar, but it's full of protein. So the fiber is the only thing in the way of that protein. So what we do is we ferment it in barrels. We ferment it for three weeks with a gas exchanger, and it goes into kind of a kimchi. You know, it ferments down and the fiber breaks down and it makes it digestible. So we put some molasses on it and barrel it up. We've been doing that for a while, but, you know, we just, we'd get a call from the brewery and run over there and get the pallet on the, you know, put the thing on the back of the truck and bring it back. But it was kind of on a whim. And then once we started telling them about what we were doing with these barrels, they were like, no, bring, just bring the empty barrels and the molasses to us. We'll just pack it right into the barrels and make the ferment. So now we can go every two or three weeks and just pick up the fermented barrels. So it's this great relationship, nice. right? It's super clean for them because they don't have any open containers. It's all, you know, barrel sealed. Right. Uh, so it's clean on their end. It's, it's stored in their warehouses and we can just pick it up and, and bring it back. And we're feeding it, you know, three, four week old grain. In Another clever source of free pig food, a grocery store, of course. And then we get all the old dairy and uh, second day bread from our local grocery store. And they're loving it because we're not uh, stinking up there. Their, their dumpsters are clean now. So that becomes the, the program, the dairy, the mixed mash, fermented mash, and the vegetable scraps are a great balanced diet for the animals. And to continue on the theme, the pigs sleep and feed on a bed of free tree chips from local arborists. And good fresh chips are really important in this process because they are, they're nitrogen absorbers. Huh. All right, so what we do is we set up these temporary homes, like uh, I call it a hamlet. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, yeah, why not? Yeah, so I missed Jack's pun. Hamlet? Okay, okay, moving on. So their, their space is, you know, 50 by 50, pretty good size area that we lay down the chips nice and thick. And on that, we put um, some big concrete blocks, like mafia blocks, in a little L shape. Mm-hmm. And their huts are in there. And that is penned in, mm-hmm. right? So they're on there at night. And then we let them out into these long runs to five acres at a time. And we let them out into quarters of that, of that area. And so that way they eat and they're watering and everything and their sleeping is all on this nice pad. Of these wood chips? And yeah, on the wood chips. <laughs> and then we let them out to work. So that way, you know, during the day, we can open any one of those doors and let them out into those sections. And what do they, uh, how do, what do, they do to these sections? What are, they, what's they their work? So they just are so methodical about how they open the ground. It's really awesome to watch them work. They they are turning logs over. They're looking for grubs. They're you know playing with each other in the space. It's it's a really safe kind of a calm environment. So they're they spread out. Um, at first, we were curious whether or not they would go to the further lengths of those areas, but they're very curious. So they, you know, they run their borders. They they and they'll open the space, and that's when we'll come in behind them and broadcast things: uh, clovers and orchard grass and uh, so wildflowers and you'll stuff. F- you'll feed them this. 
we're just spreading it on them and they're pushing it into the ground. And oh, then when they move to another they're, they're space, planting it, it for grows you. in. They're planting it. Wow. And this is how we do our forestry. And so what they're doing is they're eating out things like, uh, you know, garlic mustard and turning over things like barberry and stuff like that that are, that are blocking uh, the young hickories and stuff like that to come in. And so they open the floor. We can come in and broadcast, uh, you know, lower grasses and things like that to stabilize the floor. Mm -hmm. And then they don't go back to those areas for years. So we're working them across, you know, 100 acres, say, of forest over the course of years. That keeps us from polluting the ground Mm -hmm. because, like I said, there's all that manure. I was going to ask, what what happened? What what about waste? That always seems to be a a part of uh, pig production or pig raising. The chips soak it. That's why we use the fresh remeal chip, like the the fresh chop chip, not like mulch. Mm -hmm. So the animal's never really in the same place for very long at all. They have a home for where they're sleeping and wallowing and eating, which really shouldn't be happening in the forest. And they're eating a totally waste-fed diet. So because we're doing that, the entire cost of the operation is focused on labor and relationships rather than the cost of a grain product, which gets us out of a treadmill kind of system where we're trying to keep up with a $1,000 grain bill a week. Mm -hmm. And this way we spend about half overall between labor, all of the relationship labor and the cost of feed and that sort of thing compared to the grain plus labor. So that gets out, gets us out of that treadmill. And now it's all about how much land we want to put them on. We could continue to grow that operation. There's no shortage of mash. There's no shortage of extra vegetables. There's no shortage of expired dairy. All of those things are being thrown in landfills or composted at best. Compost is great, but if the pigs can eat it, they should. That's kind of the way we look at it. So that material ends up in compost eventually, kind of through those pigs. Right. You know, that's that's the idea. That way we have some circularity in it. The other thing is that shifting to a waste-fed diet changes the animal. Lots of things change the animal by the time it comes to butchery and cooking. Mm-hmm. And first of all, their meat is red and deep and rich, and there's a lot of... Because the animal's getting exercise and an omnivore, omnivore diet, the meat is richer, it's uh, more red, it's denser. The nutrient density is higher in those animals. Their fat can change dramatically from a grain fat. I couldn't help but notice that this entire operation is done with the exact same spirit as charcuterie, the utilizing of all resources around you, wasting nothing. What is, a, what is How important is charcuterie to the whole pig situation? Well, it's an entirely other layer uh, that builds value, builds technique, builds... Uh, seasonality. Using this animal across the entire year Mm -hmm. requires charcuterie. So that to me is the piece that we should all be aware of, that there's a seasonality for the animal, but there are also seasonalities for all of the parts because some are fresh and Uh some are cured and some are cured for a long time. Right. Uh, So that's what we want to kind of wrap our heads around a little more and be practicing that together and try to get our heads around this idea that um, having an animal constantly available to us has gotten us a little bit far away from the real specialization of season and, and timing for how we're eating these animals, too. Uh, I, have, I have two more important questions for you. One is, you called this a, a food experiment, and it's ongoing. What, what, for you, is success? Mm, success is 
recognizing new questions. Like success is delicious. Success is a beautiful thing. Success is something that is like inspiring to ask the next question. We want to know that what we've done is actually beneficial to this place that is really interesting. It makes us hungry. It makes us want to come back to the work. It makes us think at a higher level together. That's that's success. I don't know, uh, you know, if there's one thing that we've done where it was like exactly like we thought it was going to be. But I don't know if that ever mattered, honestly. I think Dan and I have always been in that place. It's like, if there was a success, it was like already in the wake. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just um, at the same time, you know, we've learned a lot from things that just did definitely not go like we thought. And because that's where we get creative. Hmm. Like that's where most of the stuff happens, right at that live edge of things. Like it's in the problem solving and the, uh, there's a little bit of consolation that happens too because there's like, oh, that didn't happen for you like you thought of, you know, it was really going to be good. So, well, here's how we did it. We ended up doing it this way, cooking it like this. Or it might come the other way where the chef at the end of the day says, you know, starts to say, how does this work? How did this even happen? How did we get this amazing flavor? Mm-hmm. Like, and so it gets us to think on the farm space, like really to, to break those old stories of what we thought was really... So success to me is that we're, we're just... The food system is an evolving thing. And, and cuisine, it's like the result of our relationship to a place. The last question that, I, that is critical to me um, is what breed makes the best bacon? <laughs> That's a great question. Well, I'll tell you that I ate a piece of this mangalitsa the other day. I mean, it was this bacon cooked. It was still like like four inches wide. And there was a strip of, it was all fat. There were two strips. Like <laughs> two little strips of made, protein. <laughs> yeah, two little strips of meat sort of red right in the middle. And it was all fat. And it went into my mouth and I it just disappeared. <laughs> It was an extraordinary thing. I think, you know, each to their own. A wonderful animal produces amazing bacon at the end of the day. Um, but I definitely have uh, learned to covet those big fat backs and, you know, that on there. And to me, that's what makes a bacon way different than oh, interesting. what we might be used to at the diner. And this newer, more creative way to feed and raise animals makes Jack think that pork could eventually be something that tastes of a specific place and time, the genuine terroir of an animal. A breed is a valuable thing to consider, but there are a lot of other parts of that, especially when you're out of a conventional system mm-hmm. that really start to affect flavor and, and honestly would make every farm have a slightly different animal even if they were raising the same breed. That's what we want to get to. To me, like that's exciting. That's when a place can sing through the way we're farming in this way. It's doing this job. It's living this incredible life. It's really servicing our place. It's creating an economy. At the end of the day, it is extraordinary eating quality. Extraordinary indeed. When we come back, we're heading into my kitchen with Chef Brian Polson to show how easy it is to cure bacon yourself. We may even cook some of it, too. Ready? Okay. 
Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If it wasn't for bacon, everyone would drink Kool-Aid and commit suicide. (laughs) We're going to be doing two things at once, curing bacon and cooking bacon. As my wife said a couple of weekends ago, who doesn't love the smell of cooking bacon? I sure do. It started to fill the kitchen. We're going to cook some bacon. Now, I normally start my bacon in water. Well, let's talk about that because there's no wrong way to cook bacon, but everything you do in the kitchen, as you know, has a purpose. So if you add water to start, what you're doing is facilitating rendering the fat. Right. So you're going to end up with a crispier end product because the fat's going to be rendered into the liquid. Um, personally, I like my bacon to taste like a steak. If you notice how thick I cut it, I cut it just past an eighth of an inch. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a quarter. I mean, just a little bit thicker than an eighth, maybe three sixteenths. And um, that gives it the opportunity to still have some good mouthfeel, chew, mm-hmm. and be crispy on the outside. Now, my wife, on the other hand, likes it likes thin bacon that's crispy and crunchy, but not burnt. And the thing about bacon, too, is that it's, of course, cured with salt, but oftentimes a sweetener, sugar. In this case, this is a maple, you know, maple sugar bacon, maple sugar, maple syrup, salt, uh, and, uh, of course, curing agents. And the sugar acts as a, uh, uh, an ingredient that offsets the harshness of the salt. Salt does its job. The sugar makes it more palatable. But the sugar is also the first thing to burn. So that's what you have to watch. So right now you've got a cast iron skillet, which is, which is absolutely perfect. Uh, we shouldn't really overlap them like this. We probably have too much bacon for this size pan, or we can 
this bacon isn't going to shrink like commercial bacon does because it's uh, it's a seven day cure the stuff I make here and gently getting started. If you want to add water to it, that's what you said you like to do. It's fine. I uh, like to do I like to do water because um, it allows me to do other things. Don't I don't let have, it swim. I don't, I don't have to think about it. Yeah. But it, it renders the fat. So, so I put you, about. You kind of like that set it and forget it thing. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. No, so I like convenience. But as soon as I hear this crackle, I know that I got to pay attention. Yeah, to it. right. So you, you, so now I can turn it up to high because water, because the water will keep it at uh, can't go over two hundred twelve degrees right. when it's sitting in water. So it renders the fat. But you're saying oh, you'll have a better mouth. You'll have a denser mouth feel to it. Not with the right. water. I no, think with the, with the dry pan. With the dry pan, definitely. Because I like that, because the outside kind of gets caramelized and the center stays, if you cut it this thick. Now, this is thicker than you normally would see commercial bacon sliced. Mm -hmm. uh, they like it thinner because packaging and all that stuff, right? It's faster to cook, blah, blah, blah. But uh, bacon is such an important part of American cooking. It's also an important part of the American kitchen. It's, it's, it's it, you know, you think about what makes great bacon is great hog, right? And starting with that, which I hope we talk about pigs, but... Um, if you think about functionality of ingredients, like what we teach at Schoolcraft, where I teach, right? We teach the students functionality of ingredients. Like, why does each thing has to have a purpose? If it doesn't have a purpose, it shouldn't be there. And you think about the simple American breakfast, bacon and eggs, right? Think about the importance of each ingredient. Eggs are important, but the chicken merely makes a contribution. The pig makes a complete commitment. So that shows you how important bacon is. So we just have a big three-pound chunk of pork belly skin on. I got my belly at Dixon Farmstand Meats. It's in the Chelsea Market in Manhattan. Now a pork belly, a whole pork belly, is about two feet long and about one foot wide. It's a big rectangle, half meat, half fat, often with the skin on, which I prefer. And it is many chefs' favorite cut. So you see how much uh, the liquid now that is, it's not more water coming out of this bacon, it's the fat rendering. Right, fat rendering. It's, it's, and it's probably pulling out some salt and sugar, as water will do, and then it's going to go back into the bacon. That's right. You'll get evaporation from the water. The fat, of course, doesn't evaporate. And then you'll be frying it in, in uh, rendered fat, which then gives you the caramelization on the outside. And if you notice, too, look at, see, cut it, cut it that thick. It's not all curled up. You know, you know what commercial bacon does when you put it in a pan with water? It shrinks up because... Most commercial bacons are injected. You know, they make a brine solution with salt water, and they inject it. In the commercial kitchen, we call it the Keith Richards method. You know, instead of using heroin, we use actually a brine method. Uh, so injecting the water cures it faster, but also that water has to be released. It's like right. ballpark franks, you know, that they'll, those hot dogs, they plump when you cook them. They're plumping, they're plumping because there's so much water inside the hot dog. That's why they plump. This belly looks real nice. I like it. It's the color of the pigment of the meat is nice and red. It looks almost beef-like. Uh, the fat has got a nice white hue to it, which I like. And of course, there's two types of fat on the pig. There's soft fat and there's hard fat. The belly, lower part of the animal, is a soft fat. And that's the luscious, creamy, mouthfeel, delicious fat. And the hard fat's going up the back, like by the neck. It's used for like salami. So this, the, the, the pigment of this meat is very good, which tells me it looks like a healthy animal, good diet. Uh, I like the connective tissue that's still attached to it because connective tissue is collagen, collagen's flavor. So we're going to take the cure mix, which we use. So we got salt there. So we use kosher salt. And that looks like you're putting about a third of a cup of salt into a bowl. And you've got pink salt, which is sodium nitrite. Nitrites do three things to me. They prevent botulism toxins from growing. 
which can happen in a smokehouse or in a dry-cured salami. They turn the meat pink, and they give it a piquant flavor. Nitrites are the reason a pork belly tastes like bacon rather than spare ribs. Oh, curing salt, TCM, quick cure and secure. Uh, nitrites get a bad rap. You know, this, this particular product is highly regulated by the USDA. It's 94% sodium chloride, which is pure salt, 6% uh, sodium nitrate. And nitrites are important in the smokehouse because it kills botulism. And you can't safely smoke in the charcuterie world, which is what we're talking about. Different than barbecue, different than uh, uh, hot smoking and other, they do it at higher temperatures. We do this kind of smoking at a lower temperature, so our chamber is about 180 degrees. Why is that important? Because we're working in the danger zone. And the danger zone is where bacteria can thrive. So we have to address it. Also, we have uh, maple syrup. A quarter cup of maple syrup in the bowl with the salt and the pink salt. And of course, the sweetener, whatever sweetener you use, is there to offset the harshness of the salt. And then brown sugar and maple sugar. So uh, tell me about maple sugar. What is that? So it's maple dehydrated sugar. maple syrup. It's basically take the water out of the maple syrup and you have maple sugar. So I'm just going to mix all the ingredients together. It, uh, you know, it looks like 11 or 12 months old because it's, uh, it, it would have to be that old for the belly to get that thick. Commercial hogs only go about five months. And if you look at a commercial pig, like at a typical grocery store, I can't say what name, I don't know, but they're much thinner than this. Mm -hmm. And so this tells me it's got uh, some age to it, which is good. So we're gonna rub it on. I do a seven day cure. So it's a very slow migration. The salt penetrates the muscle very, very slowly while it's imparting flavor because the salt's job is to remove the water. Uh, the muscle is about 72% water. While that water and salt gets dissolved, it also takes the flavor of the other ingredients, in this case, maple syrup and maple sugar, and then, of course, the cured nitrites. We're going to turn our attention back to the stove. I heard that bacon starting to crackle and knew we had to pay attention to it. Yeah, it's ready to be turned, but you see, it's not shrinking up because we didn't remove that much water, and we didn't impart water, too. You want me to turn it? Yeah. So we should get a nice, beautiful color on the other side. Look at that. Very nice. Oh, so I God. turned it, as soon as the water went down, I turned it to low. That's, that was exactly the right thing to do. And look at it, it's not swimming in fat, it's not swimming in, um, in water, because the water's evaporated, but also, we haven't lost any shrinkage. Our, our, the yeah. bacon is basically yeah. the same size raw as it's getting cooked. And so it makes a difference where you get your meat? Oh, definitely, yeah. <laughs> and how you treat it? This is a Michigan Berkshire pig that we're cooking. That looks good. All right, so, so you've got this sort of slushy mixture of uh, salts, yeah. maple syrup. So mix it all up. And now we're just going to rub it on the belly. Now, here's, here's a thing or two to remember. Um, you have to choose a container that is non-reactive because salt's the most powerful ingredient in the kitchen. So if you use like a cookie sheet, like an aluminum pan, this, that particular metal, or nickel, which is another cheap metal that used for cheap pans, salt's so powerful it can pit the metal. And you don't want to impart that metal into your food because, you know, you probably shouldn't be eating aluminum and nickel. Um, so we're going to use a plastic Ziploc bag, which is perfect because the bag itself is non-reactive, the plastic, and it also forces the cure to stay adhered to the surface area. Now we've got a kind of a square rectangular piece of belly. There's six sides to it, right? Mm -hmm. So when we put the cure on, we're going to rub it on. 
you just use your hands. And this belly right here, you can see part of the square ribs were right here. Mm -hmm. You gotta make sure you rub it really good into the nook, every nook and cranny. The side with the skin is, is important, but you're gonna get slower penetration through the skin than you will the, the fat right. and meat side. So I've got like a piece of wax paper down first so I'm not making a mess out of your table. And then when I put it in the bag, I'm going to rub the skin side and then I'm gonna massage the bag. Now, that might sound weird to your listeners. It's okay to massage your, your belly. <laughs> <laughs> I guess is the best way to say it. So I'm rubbing the, the sides and you know, right, right away, this isn't, you know, the salt's not gonna immediately start ripping the water up, but by tomorrow, within a 24 hour period, this bag will have a little bit of juice in it. The juice came from the meat, the water in the meat itself. So the salt's doing its job. Okay, now I, I get a lot of questions. Um, people are making their own bacon. They've got our book, Charcuterie, where you can actually, where this, we have this recipe. Um, and they say, it's not working. There's no water coming out. <laughs> that's that's uh, it's a typical response because they're expecting. But you know what? Probably because they have a better piece of meat. Yeah, the the the, the uh, the cure is, this isn't going to swim. You know, you're not going to reduce the water activity by 20% or anything. It's slowly just going to work its way through the muscle, through the, the cell structure where the water is, and carry with it the cure and the, and the sweetener, in this case, the maple. This, this should not be swimming in water by the, at, at the end of seven days. Now, if you have a, a poor quality pig, the poorer the quality of meat, the more water's gonna come out. Right. Okay, so there. It's in a regular... Like gallon Ziploc bag. Or do a two gallon if you've got a bigger... I can fit a five pound piece of uh, belly in a two gallon Ziploc. Yeah. And it's a purr, it just goes in the refrigerator. I started skin side down. So I just wanna massage the muscle with my thumb and forefinger, very nice. And that's basically it. Now, let, you gotta let nature take its course now. Tomorrow, or maybe the second day, we do what's called in the, in the professional kitchen, we call overhauling. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use bags in a kitchen, I would use pans in it, so I'd flip it over so the top becomes the bottom, bottom becomes the top, and you have an opportunity for uh, even, even exposure to the ingredients. Well, in this plastic bag, all you gotta do is, you know, when you're making your coffee, what's today, uh, Saturday, so Monday morning, you gotta make your coffee, reach in the refrigerator, grab your bag, give it a massage, and flip it over. It's done. Beautiful. Take it out after seven days. Give it a quick rinse. Get the residual salt off the top, and then slow, slowly smoke it. Whatever flavor would you like? I like. What do, what do you recommend for people who don't have a smoker? Oh, you got a barbecue? You can do it on a barbecue grill, a hibachi or something like that. Okay, you're on West 12th Street in <laughs> West Village, and there's a fire escape outside. They don't even let me have a, uh, a little grill out there. Well, I don't know. The fact is, you can just roast it. Roast it in the oven, yeah. And it sure. will be fine. Yeah. It'll still be bacon. I would take, uh, have that smoky have a smoky flavor. I would, I would then give it a different flavor profile. I'd maybe put Dijon mustard on it, score through the fat, you know, maybe take the skin off at that point for roasting, and uh, maybe score the skin, rub it with mustard, and let it roast nice and slow like that so the skin gets crispy, and the, and the scoring allows the flavor of the mustard to get in there. That would taste really good. Um, Nice. Sounds like you actually know what you're talking about. <laughs> Been around the block once or twice. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at this bacon. How's this bacon looking? This like? looks good, man. See, this is about as far as I would take it. Mm -hmm. I like it, you know, 
I don't know. Yeah, it's not quite crispy. not quite medium rare, but I, I like it like chewy still. So for me, it's like this. So at home, when I make bacon like this, I pull it my my portion out now, but I leave it in, and I get more caramelization for for your wife. For my wife, who um, she likes it more like this piece, and I like mine more like this piece. Does she give you an attaboy when you do that for her? <laughs> Once in a while, everybody likes an attaboy. <laughs> you, I've told you that story. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, people think I know what I'm doing. You know, I'm pretty good at what I do and stuff. And I get, I, I get nothing from my family sometimes. <laughs> That's funny. All right, we're gonna take this bacon out. Yeah, you know, paper towel or something. We're getting nice caramelization, uh, not burnt, right? Little, little crispy on the outside. That's good. Yeah, deep red bacon. That's from the uh, Cure. Cure also gives it that bacony flavor. Um, if you cure, cure a chicken with pink salt, you're gonna get a hammy flavor. Yeah, uh, you're not gonna get the same color because there's the, the, what turns the meat pink like that is the myoglobin protein. Chicken has less myoglobin than other muscles. All right, so let's give it a taste here. So I'm just gonna pat the top good. It's gonna be, it's gonna be warm. See so your kids over there in the corner looking on quietly, happily. I do have two ben. of my five children live here in New York, so I'm double downing, I'm doubling up spending time with them and you at the same time. Okay, how's the bacon? Well, let's, here, you guys want to taste? Here's the thing. Take a piece, let's all taste it together. And I'll tell you what you should be thinking about. First thing on your palate, when you taste bacon, it should not be salty. You know, you don't want it to be salty. Personally, I like the mouthfeel, so I'm gonna take it. Take a bite. First thing I taste is smoke. Then, miraculously enough, I taste pork. Right? There's pork flavor. To me, that's a sign of really good charcuterie is when you taste what the original ingredient was, which is, in this case, pork. Now, I got a little bit of sweetness, and then now just a little bit of salt on the side of my tongue. That's why I taste salt always on the side of my tongue, not on the top, always on the side. And I really find good salted food very delicious, but not overpowering. Mmm. And you're gonna be eating this with other ingredients, whether mm. it's a, on a BLT or yeah. eggs, as you said. So that could be good as well. Beautiful. Thank you, Brian. All right. Thanks for this bacon demo. I appreciate it. Special thanks for the hospitality to Jack Algier and Jessica Galen and the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture. Also, thanks for the bacon, Brian. He and I authored three books together, Charcuterie, Salumi, and most recently, a book called Pâté Confit Riette. Lastly, my new book is out now. It's also called From Scratch, but it's all about cooking and 10 meals that can teach us all we need to know in the kitchen. We'll have a link to it in the show notes and on my site, ruleman.com. From Scratch, the podcast, is produced by Jonathan Hawes Dressler. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. Our supervising producer is Gabrielle Collins. The music is by Ryan Scott off his album, A Freak Grows in Brooklyn. From Scratch is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.